I really enjoyed preparing for this teaching. I invested some time into it also, so I, I hope you find it beneficial. And um, this is this, some of the things I'll be sharing with you, I feel like are a message that the Father has been forming in my heart for several years and doesn't apply only to us as a congregation, but to us as a movement also. Uh, some of the specifics also are things that have been in my spirit for the last couple of months. And through, it was an interesting set of events that led to this particular Shabbat being the one that I was going to give this teaching. And I'm not going to tell the whole story, but it makes me think that this is the Shabbat to do this teaching. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's, let's jump right into that. Um, there are a couple ways we can springboard from these sections into the whole concept of teaching. What is teaching all about? Why do we have it? And Midrash. What's a Midrash? Why do we Midrash? Etc. What are objectives in it? Uh, in Mark chapter 10, verse 1, it's the very first verse in uh, the New Covenant passage, and it says that Yeshua was in the habit of doing something. <laughs> he had a custom when he was around people. It says, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 1, getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and uh, according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. So what was Yeshua in the habit of doing? What was his custom? When he saw a crowd of people and he just saw that they needed direction in life, he, they needed things to be explained to them, they need, their hearts needed to be comforted, they needed to be attracted to the God of their fathers, what would he do? He would teach them. Wow, our Savior is a teacher. Do you think he might still be in the habit of teaching his people? I don't know about you, but I know there have been times in my life where I have felt disoriented, when I've needed his comfort, when I've needed to feel a mission from him, when I've needed him to teach me. And I've, I've asked him so many times, Yeshua, please teach me. I need you to teach me the situation. Um, an, an example would be, you know, growing up, I, I didn't have a very strong male influence in my life to teach me about what it is to be a man, how to serve my wife when I get married, uh, how to father children. That was an area that I had to say, Yeshua, you're a teacher. You're in the habit of teaching your people. You're still alive today. You're my rabbi. You, you speak into our lives and you have such wise counsel. Please, please teach me. And uh, that would be an example of that. So I, I love that about Yeshua and I wanted to start with that. Uh, something I love about this parasha is it's a perfect parasha from beginning to end. The whole thing is a revelation in the midst of the glory on Mount Sinai to, Mount, to Moses. There's no human flaws and uh, garbage in this parasha. And uh, it's, it's interesting how Yahweh chooses to communicate. I mean, okay, you know, usually we will like explain something, we'll just say it like it is. Um, maybe sometimes we can even be really blunt in Western culture. But Yahweh has these deep things he wants to communicate. And so he's like, okay, Moses, uh, build this tent and put this furniture in the tent. And this is the dimensions of the furniture. And this is what you're going to do with that. And he starts talking about, I don't know about you, but this parasha, it's, it's really hard to read it for me. It, like, I get lost really fast. I don't know about some of you, but when it starts going into the dimensions of the curtains and the boards, and how many boards go on each side, how many of you felt a little bored? Maybe you did. But here's the thing. There are profound truths in this parasha. And when we plug into the Holy Spirit and we ask Him to share those deep things with us, He does, and it, and it comes alive, and Yeshua is the fulfillment of it. So we're going to look at a couple pictures that the Father has for us in this parasha that maybe communicate deeper truths. I think they do. And... In order to do that, we're going to have an object lesson because 
essentially this whole parse is an object lesson. It's a whole bunch of objects with lessons behind them. So I'll, I guess I'll have, to, I'll have to use this chair to do that. Okay. So, um, and this, this is a picture of Midrash, what we're about to look at, in case you're wondering where this is going. Um, in chapter 25, verse 22 of, of Exodus, the book of Shemot, it says there's a place. He says, there. He says, in that place where he will speak to us. There's a place where he'll meet with us personally. There's a place where he'll give us our mission. He says, where I will uh, give you commandment for the sons of Israel. There's a place where he will dwell in his glory. His glory is who he most deeply is. It's the weight of his presence. And he says there's a place. Do any of you feel like you're not very close to that place sometimes? I do. Some days, like, I do not feel close to God. I do not feel the weight of his personality in my life. I, I, don't feel, I feel disoriented from the mission he has for me. And I... I'm not hearing him talking to me. But there is a place. And we're going to learn about where that place is and how to get there today. And uh, I want you to prepare for an encounter with extreme holiness today because um, a couple of verses down, he talks about the, the curtain. He says, okay, Moses, there's, in this tent, there's going to be a curtain in the middle of it. And on one side is the holy stuff. And on the other side is the really holy stuff. Okay. So we're going to look, we're going to pull back the curtain and we're going to have a look in great reverence, in awe of the king of the universe at the really holy stuff. It's the, it's the stuff that was at the very center of the national life of Israel. It's the stuff that was at the very core of the faith of the Jewish people for the ages. And uh, we're going we're gonna to have a look at that. So just prepare your hearts. Um, firstly, we're going to look at chapter 25, uh, verses 10 to 16, it talks about the Aron. That's the word translated ark usually. We don't use the word ark very often in English unless we're speaking Old English. A uh, better translation would just be the chest or the box, okay? We're going to call it a box. There's this box. And can anyone tell me what goes in the box? Verse 16 is where it says what goes in the box. The testimony, that's right. This is a box that I thought could help you understand what it's all about. It's a cedar box. It smells really nice. It's Genevieve. She said I could, I could bring it for show and tell. This is the box that Genevieve keeps all my love letters to her in. So you're not allowed to look in it. <laughs> but I wanted to show this to you because what went in the box in the really holy part of the tent? The written word. Wasn't it? That's what went in the box. The written word. What's that? That was the love letters from the God of Israel to his people. So this is at the very center of everything. The written word. Everybody say, the written word. word. So we're going to put that right there, okay? Now something went on top of the the box. Let's have a look at that. Uh, Chapter 25, verses 17 to 22, talks about the mercy seat, the... uh, Atonement, uh, whatever you want to call it. The Hebrew word is kaporet. Can we all say kaporet? Okay. And uh, the root there is kapar. Can we think of any, let's say, uh, an appointed time on the biblical calendar with that root in it? Yom Kippur. That's correct. And what does the word kippur mean? Atonement. That's right. It literally means to cover. And uh, we have the, so we get the, the connotation of atonement from that. 
So in other words, the kaporet went on the box. You could even translate that in a more neutral term as like a lid, okay? The lid goes on the box. And what is sprinkled on the lid every year on the holiest day of the year? Blood. That's correct. So we have this kaporet and there's blood sprinkled on it. What is that a picture of? Who is our ultimate atonement? Yeshua. Does it talk about his blood being sprinkled for the forgiveness of our sins and so we can be reconciled with our Creator, etc.? Yes, it does. So, the written word, and what will go on the written word? Oh, I, oh by the way, I'll just uh, show you that. There's, there's, a, there's a nice uh, box with some love letters in it. You can flip one more over. And there's a really antique love letter box from a lady in past generations who's Bo would write him letters, write her, write her letters, excuse me. And then flip one more over. So that's a picture of the sprinkled blood. It's not real blood, don't be scared, red paint. And um, so we're going to put this on top of here, okay? So this is, so far, this is our encounter with extreme holiness. There's some deep stuff here. Okay, the third thing. In chapter 25, verses 8, 18 to 22, we have this whole picture kind of summed up. Oh, you can flip it back to the other one. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> sorry, guys. Just uh, It was red paint, but okay. I'm sorry if that uh, is a little too much for anybody. For me, anyway, though, when I see that, I think, wow, Yeshua actually shed his blood so I could be forgiven of my sins, so I can be reconciled. But that's good. We'll leave it with a... Actually, put it to the other love letter box. That's an even prettier one. Okay. Now, <laughs> so we have, uh, we have these two figures. In Hebrew, they're called kruvim. Can we all say kruvim? In English, we say cherubim, of course. Okay, Now, I need two cherubim. Hmm. Sam, would you be one of my cherubim? <laughs> and Daniel, would you be my other cherubim? Cherub, sorry. Oh, I almost called you by the plural. Cherub is singular. Cherubim is plural. So I need you guys to stand on either side of here for me. Great. Okay. So you can just stand there for a sec, and we'll go on from here. Okay, now the Hebrew root of kruvim is karav. Everybody say karav. karav. It's spelled with a kaf, but when you spell it with a kuf, which is a cognate, and is basically the same thing, it's the word for drawing near to the Almighty. Um, when James, in chapter 4, verse 7, said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, that's the word. Um, all of the offerings in the Torah, the animal offerings, are called korbanot. It's that same word. Okay? So these guys are a picture of something. They're a picture of karaving to him. And that word karaving means to draw near, to approach the throne, to, uh, to come really close to him. So that's what, it, that's what the cherubim are a picture of. Oh, yeah. And uh, it says a couple things about them. Okay, so we can say these guys represent worship. When we come to the Father and worship, they represent prayer when we draw near to Him, okay? So I need you guys to face each other. And you guys are cherubim now, okay? You're not humans. So those things dangling by your side, they're not actually arms. They're wings now. So I need you to stretch your wings out like that at each other. And um, you can touch wings, okay? You can lock hands like if you want, like, a, like that or whatever. You know, get, get it in there really good. Just don't start fighting. Okay, awesome. You guys look good. Keep that up. Okay, so here are the two Kruvim uh, and their wings. And now we're going to ask ourselves, if these guys represent us as worshipers, if these guys are a picture of us as a congregation when we're praying, 
What does this tell us? Because there's something about Midrash in here too. We're going to talk about the very heart of Midrash. Um, chapter 25, verse 20, it says, Their wings are sechaching the kaporet. Their wings are, uh, that word sechach, it's the root word for sukkah. What's a sukkah? It's a shelter. So what are their wings? What are the, their wings are, or what are they doing over the atonement? They're sheltering the atonement. And what else are they sheltering? What's under the sprinkled blood? The testimony, the written word, that's correct. Okay, so what does this tell us about when we assemble in Yeshua's name and when we midrash with each other, when we have a scripture-based discussion? We're covering the word. A safe place, yeah. They're, they're, they are meeting over the atonement of Messiah. There's no right answer, so just say what you're thinking. They're united, yes. Their wings are touching in the midst of the glory. They're in a relationship, sure. Yeah, the Torah is the foundation and the center of everything. They're guarding and protecting. What are they guarding and protecting? The Word and the Atonement, yes. Actually, you guys just stay there. You're doing a, you guys are great, Kruvim, keep it up. Um, actually, Colin, what you said about them in relationship is interesting, because in chapter 25, verse 20, it says in the Hebrew that their faces, these, these, these two guys' faces, they're ish el-achiv el-hakaporet. What it literally says is, their faces are each man to his brother to the Atonement. Okay? Each man to his brother to the atonement. So when we gather over the written word to discuss it and to have teaching, our faces are to each other. We're developing relationship. But it's based on what? The, word, the written word and the atonement. It's based on the fact that Yeshua loved each one of you so much that he shed his blood for you. That he wanted to be close to you so much and bring you to the Father that he went through suffering. That you are forgiven. That you are made a new person. That you are right with God. That you have an awesome heart. Why? Because of the atonement. That's what this is a picture of. So, any other, any other thoughts on that? Wow. So these angels are peering intently, longing to look into the work, right? Into the, wow. the revelation of Messiah. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you guys are longing to look in that box and yeah. see what those deep mysteries are, hey? That's phenomenal, Tim. Thank you. No, I, I give credit to Daniel. <laughs> 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 yeah, Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Sam. Thank you, Daniel. So give these guys a applause. And you guys did a great job being proving. So you can go back to being humans now, and you can go back to your families. So anyway, that's a, that's a picture of... That's a picture of Midrash. And what, what it tells us is there's something really holy here. Like, at the very, our very heart as a people is that Midrash, that interchange in worship through His glory, based on the atonement of Messiah, based on the gospel, and based on the written word. So that's the core of it. And isn't it cool that that happened to come up in this parasha? Woo! Okay, so from here, I'm just going to talk a little about what teaching is, why we have teaching, um, and then we're going to talk about what Midrash is, why we have Midrash, uh, some scriptural parameters for Midrash, what we can learn from the Word. It's going to be fun. Okay, teaching. What's the Hebrew word for teaching? Torah, Torah, that's correct. What's the root of Torah? Yarah, that's correct. What is Yarah? I need everybody to act it out for me. It's a physical verb. I don't see everybody acting it out for me. So it's, uh, what, are you, what are you doing here? What, what's going on? What is this? I'm just doing what Tim's doing. Okay. <laughs> is it like a dance? 
I see some kind of dance, but I'm... To draw a bow and shoot an arrow. That's correct. It's the word for archery. So everybody, I need everybody to do that with me, okay? Draw your bow. Carefully, you don't point it at anybody. We learned that in hunter safety course. And uh, draw your bow. Don't let it go. So now you let it back down. And um, okay, good. So, so that's the picture of teaching. Um, I, have any of you actually stopped to contemplate deeply why archery is a picture of teaching? I didn't until this last week. I discovered some neat things that we're going to look at in a minute. I have a couple movie clips of archery that's beautiful, classical archery, and also a couple interesting ones of uh, exploding arrows. I guess I found some guys who like to pack their arrows with gunpowder and then shoot them. So um, track with me and you're going to get to see that. It was fun. Okay, there's a picture of archery. Nice pick, eh? So there's a picture of teaching. And then one more. Go back one. Okay, there, that's the one. Thank you. Sneak preview. Okay, um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 19 says that Yeshua wants you to be great for God. He wants you to be great in the kingdom. And he gives a very quantifiable path for getting there. He says, he, he says the way. And uh, it's firstly to take your own observance of God's commandments... And the context of this, this passage is the commandments of the Torah. It's not just talking about New Testament commandments. He says, take your observance of God's commandments in the Torah seriously. And secondly, teach others to do the same. How many of you in this room does this apply to? If you have answered Yeshua's call to discipleship. Okay. So are you... I didn't see many hands go up. How many of you, if you've answered Yeshua's call, how does this apply to you? Yes, it does. So let me ask you, how many of you in this room are called to teach other people to do God's commandments? Yes, you are. So that's why this teaching on teaching is very applicable to you. Uh, second verse is the last verse in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Yeshua says, go and make disciples and what? Teach them. Does this, a mission that applies to each one of us? What are we to teach them? To do all that he commanded us. Okay? So this is each one of us. This is our mission. (laughs) Um, Let's go to the next picture. (laughs) No, that isn't Tirza. That's a picture of Christopher from about three years ago. (laughs) Just joking. I I posted that on his Facebook wall a couple months ago and said, here's a picture of Christopher. Um, (laughs) He's in Israel, so I thought I would choose him to pick on. He can't get me for now. <laughs> anyway, um, so, okay, this, uh, there's the, the, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, the Messianic Jews, however you want to phrase it. He says in chapter 5, verse 12, he's a little frustrated. And he says, you guys, you ought to be teachers by now, but you're still a bunch of spiritual babies. Like, you should be eating meat already, and you're still, you still need milk. And he didn't talk about it was like it was a good thing. So what we get from that is, you know, as we grow in spiritual maturity, as we grow in our in discipleship, each of us have a sphere of influence, and each of us have that that uh, that space where we can influence other people to follow Yeshua, to love God, to keep it real, and to do the stuff He said. And uh, we're all growing into that. We're all growing out of that. Although I have to admit, I still have some times when I'm that. <laughs> Ask Genevieve. Okay. Now I'm going to mention one verse about archery from the prophets, and then we're going to watch a beautiful uh, movie clip of archery. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 9, verse 13. You can turn there with me if you want. 
Uh, but you don't have to. Sorry, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 13. Because I will read it to you. It's uh, talking about archery, and uh, this is Yahweh talking. Chapter 9, verse 13 of Zechariah. I will bend Judah as my bow, and I will fill the bow with a frame, and I will stir up your son Zion against your son's Greece, and I will make you like a warrior's sword. And then it talks about some supernatural phenomena when Yahweh comes in a very powerful way. So uh, here's the picture. You have the sons of Greece on one side. Um, How many of you know our Western worldview and culture and our religious system in the West, even part of the body of Christ, is based in the Greco-Roman way of doing things? You know, God is calling us as the body of Messiah back to the ancient paths, back to Jerusalem, etc. But unfortunately, to a degree, because we uh, come out of a Protestant system that came out of a Roman Catholic system that had its roots in um, Greek ideology and Roman paganism, you know, our roots sometimes run farther, deeper into Rome and Athens than they do into Jerusalem. And the Father's changing that. But he says, okay, so you have the sons of Greece on one side. Who do you have on the other side in antithesis? The sons of Zion. That is correct. Either you're a son of Greece or you're a son of Zion. And I don't think you'd be here today if you were not a, a son of Zion. So, bless you for that. The Father's doing something with his people. And, uh, this one was born in Zion. That's correct. Our spiritual roots are in Zion. This one and that one, yeah. And that one and that one and that one and that one. Wow. I like how that dovetails. Thanks for pointing that out, Tim. Okay. And uh, he says, I'll bend Judah's my bow and fill the bow with a frame. Okay, on a prophetic level, this is something I've talked about in the, fa- in the past. Judah represents the Jewish people. Judah today, I believe in this context, is Messianic Judaism, okay? That really started in the 1800s, picked up speed, and accelerated in the 1960s. Um, I think, I'm not sure if we're aware of this, but like, even though maybe quite a few of us aren't ethnic Jews, a couple of us are, you know, so therefore we don't call ourselves Messianic Jews so much as we just call ourselves Messianic, but this congregation is a direct result of the Messianic Jewish movement that started in the 1960s. And we can't forget that. Our roots are in Messianic Judaism. Our origins, the matrix from which we emerged, is Messianic Judaism. Name, uh, name me your favorite Messianic teachers. You can do this later if you want. And I'll point out to you how they emerged from the milieu of Messianic Judaism from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, most of your favorite Messianic Jewish teachers are probably Jewish. Okay. So anyway, that's Judah. He's the bow. He's the propellant. And who is the arrow that gets shot out of him? Ephraim, okay? Ephraim is the son of Joseph. Joseph slash Ephraim. Prophetically, I'm talking prophetically here, okay? This is a picture. Represents believers from the nations. In this case, believers from the nations who are returning to the Hebrew roots of their faith. So this is a prophecy for today. Yahweh says, I'm going to take Messianic Judaism as my bow, and I'm going to use my arrow, namely believers from the nations, like Joseph, who was the son of Israel, but he looked like a Gentile, and I'm going to shoot him. And I'm going to make war against the sons of Greece with my sons of Zion. And I'm going to make you a warrior's sword. What's, what's the sword picture in, 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 the, in the Bible? The Word, that's correct. So as we return to the Word, as we had sharpened the Word, the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, this is coming true in our midst. So having said that, we're going to watch this clip um, Colin, if you want to cue that up on the Windows thing, you can do that. And I'll just, uh, 
as Colin's doing that, I'll mention there are four levels to this as we watch it, okay? It's just going to be some slow motion pictures of classical archery. And you can think about it on different levels. Think about how this is a picture of what Yahweh is doing with his people today, prophetically. How he is bringing believers from the nations and he is preparing them to make an impact and he is using the teaching of Torah, which we got from Messianic Judaism, to do that. On another level, think about Yeshua, your teacher, and how he is the archer and you are the arrow. Um, On the third level, think about teaching in general. This is a picture of what teaching should look like in the body of Messiah. And finally, if you're a parent, think about how this is a picture of you and your children. It's kind of cool when you look at that theme. Uh, Children are likened to arrows throughout the Tanakh. There's a, a picture of that there. So those are the four levels that we can be thinking at as we, uh, as we watch this. Is it queued up, Colin? Um, should be nice. It's some beautiful kind of classic music. You can play it pretty loud. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to share something else about it now. Okay. Um, Let's just skip to the next topic and then we'll jump back to this. Uh, why have teaching? This is pretty no-brainer stuff. Um, I'm not sure if you noticed, but this whole teaching is pretty simple. I just want to hit the basics of it. So uh, chapter, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul says, Timothy, while I'm gone, give attention to some things. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Give attention to preaching and teaching. Now, if we come from a church background, unfortunately, we really forgot the first half of that verse. Um, We don't generally do a lot of public reading of Scripture in church. We might have a couple verses, and then the pastor will give a sermon on it. But this was the, the, the context of Paul's words was the synagogue and the readings of the Torah, the readings of the prophets. And if you look at what he actually wrote there in the Greek, it does it just says give attention to the reading. Um, Now, in the Messianic. Uh, community though, often like we have really gone wild on Midrash and I love it because we're discovering the word and it's coming alive and it's how you it's how you learn when you can compare notes and stuff. But sometimes we've forgotten about the value of teaching and preaching. And that's why we've begun to intentionally bring in times of teaching and preaching in congregation. Um, I've observed that this isn't just a localized thing. This is a broader trend in the body of Messiah, or in the Messianic movement specifically. Uh, in the last decade, especially the first half of it, like it was mostly Midrash, because we were all discovering this stuff, uh, we were all discussing it, and uh, we reached a point where we realized we need more teaching also. Uh, Boaz, when he was here, talked about that, about how he's been in congregations, including his home one, where they realized in the last year or two that we need more teaching, so they began making more time for that. So uh, that's um, how Paul's words apply to both sides. Um, is that queued up yet? Okay. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. Maybe we can uh, look at that for a second. <clears throat> it's Paul talking. And he says, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. God has appointed in the congregation first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So actually, teachers are third in this list. We're not talking about apostles and prophets today, but they are so important too in uh, what the Father is doing. So uh, the, the, key, uh, the key idea is there is, uh, who appoints teachers? 
from that verse? God. It says God's appointed apostles, prophets, and teachers. So um, that's the main, that's the reason to have teaching. Because for some reason, God thinks it's important to appoint people to teach. Um, yeah, so it basically tells us that if you're teaching, you teach because God has called you to teach. Uh, a man teaches because he's been given that job, uh, because he's been assigned that task, because he's been entrusted with that mission. That's why we have teachers. And uh, when a man teaches, he's responsible for what he teaches. Uh, James chapter 3, verse 1 is scary. He said, Not, you, a whole bunch of you shouldn't aspire to be teachers because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. And we could read that in one of two ways, and I think they're both true. God is going to be more strict with you in how he evaluates you, and he's going to keep you on a tighter leash. I think it also means people are going to high, hold you to a higher level of accountability. And that's a good thing. <laughs> Did any of you know that's what an arrow looks like when it's propelled? At least in classical archery? I didn't know that. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so um, what does that teach us about the role of teaching on those four levels we talked about? Here, here are a couple insights that I had. Teaching is designed to propel you with force, i.e., to get you moving. <laughs> To move you from a stationary status to an active status. Does anybody know what Newton's first law of motion tells us? And, inver- and conversely. Yeah, and the other half is uh, an object in motion will stay in motion and an object at rest will stay at rest unless acted upon by an external force. And teaching is designed in the body of Messiah to be that external force that gets us moving, that, that put, can put us into action. Um, we learned that from archery. Okay, um, how does that mean that biblical teaching, teaching inspired by the Holy Spirit, will make you feel? How did that arrow feel when it was being propelled? Stressed. It looked stressed, didn't it? Yeah. It felt empowered. It felt empowered. It wanted to stay in one place, but it just wasn't happening, was it? That arrow was uncomfortable. That arrow had to bend a little bit, didn't it? Yeah. It looked like it was liquid. It looked like liquid, yeah. That was beautiful. So, all that to say, you know, when there's anointed teaching happening, you might feel pushed. You might feel uncomfortable. You might not feel like your ears are being tickled. And I can't believe Joel just actually let me do that. <laughs> You're solid, man. Oh. I'm tickler, so I can't handle people tickling my ears. Um, <laughs> but, th- you know, that's, that's what you might feel like. Um, you might feel rushed. You might be asking yourself, well, why, why the urgency? What's with the urgency of this? Whoa! As, you, as you're pushed along, right? That's the idea behind teaching. It can make you uncomfortable. Yeah, that arrow was being set free, released. Oh, that is awesome. Thank you. I just thought of progression, too. Progression, going from one place to another. Right. Moving feel, forward. You might feel fulfillment too. Like if you're an arrow, you sat on the shelf for all your life, mm-hmm. for years and years, you never knew what you were made for. And all of a sudden, you just got propelled. And like, mm. I have a mission. I'm flying towards that target. You know, we had a quiver of arrows at our house sitting in the closet, and uh, I listened to them one time, and they were talking. And uh, they said, It sure is boring just sitting here in this quiver. <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> you saw in that last picture the fletching all blew right off the arrow, hey? Yeah. So. What does the fletching represent in our lives? 
Let's figure this out. <laughs> it sounds good to me. Uh, I just want to share with you a little, uh, a little quote from the Chinese house church movement about being uncomfortable. It's from the book The Heavenly Man. The Remarkable True Story of Chinese Christian Brother Yoon. This is an awesome book. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Great to read with your families too. Make your homeschooling curriculum maybe. But here's a, here's a little quote from Brother Yoon. He says, um, From this time on, we re- started to receive a small number of foreigners into our midst. We enjoyed their company and were thankful for the Bibles and materials they provided, but sometimes we struggled to host them. For example, at that time, we always rose at 5 a.m. for our daily prayer meetings. After prayer and breakfast, we would work diligently for the Lord until midnight. The house church believers loved to hear long messages from God's word. Many Chinese preachers could speak powerfully without pausing for several hours at a time. Then, after a meal break, they would continue for another several hours. This pattern continued day after day. We found that some of our foreign visitors could only speak for 45 minutes before they ran out of things to say. So we asked that only those who were able to teach for at least two hours at a time should come to us. So there is, a, there is a time and a place for short teachings. And as we, you know, when you, when you, as we also realize, when there's a deep hunger for the Word of God, there is also a time for long teachings. There's a time to pack it in and to get all the oil you can while you can get it. So we're not going to have a two-hour teaching today, don't worry. But um, I thought, you know, that's challenging. There are times for things like that. Um, okay. Uh, a congregation's relationship to a teacher. A couple of basic principles here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says that Messiah gave some, gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So what we learn from this is teachers are a gift from Messiah to his bride, and they should be received as a gift. Um, we also learn in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, it says, The one who's taught the word should share all good things with him who teaches. And uh, the next verse he says that the, don't muzzle the ox while he's uh, treading out the grain. And uh, the worker is worthy of his wages. Whereas we would say, um, the employee deserves his paycheck. And uh, the very next verse after that is about sowing and reaping. So these three verses are all in context with each other. Um, what that means is, this verse about sowing, sowing to your teachers, they'll give you an awesome return. If you invest in your congregational leaders, your spiritual dividends will hit the roof. That's the idea behind Paul's statement. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, it also says, Consider the elders who do a good job leading as deserving of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And uh, sorry, then the next verse after this is where he talks about the ox and um, the employee deserving his paycheck. And 1 Corinthians chapter 9 elaborates on that theme also. So there's a, there's a relationship between a congregation and between uh, people that God is calling to serve that congregation, as we learn from, uh, from these verses. Okay. Next section. Let's talk about... Midrash. <laughs> okay. Uh, the root of Midrash is the word Darash. Uh, it pops up all over the place in the Torah. It usually means to seek. Uh, uh, where in Parsha Yitro, Exodus 18.15, it says the people came to Moshe to Drash Elohim. The people came to Moses to inquire of God, to seek God. So the heart of Midrash, which we usually use in the context of scripture-based discussion is seeking something, inquiring of someone. Um, 
I'll give you a little history of Midrash. Uh, the word basically in the Jewish world means scripture commentary. Uh, there's a 10-volume series called the Midrash Rabbah. It's traditional Jewish commentary on the Torah uh, from shortly after Yeshua's time. It's amazing stuff. Really deep insights. I, I've really enjoyed reading the Midrash Rabbah. Um, also, a Beit Midrash in Hebrew is a house of Midrash, usually called a house of study in English. It's where you would go in your evenings or in your free time. The holy text would be there. You would meet with other, other people over the word. You would open the holy texts and discuss things and seek things out. So that's where we get the idea of Midrash as being a, a discussion time, a time of study. Um, in the Messianic community, Midrash has kind of taken on a life of its own, uh, a, a meaning of its own. And we're going to look at that for just a minute here. Uh, something I love about this uh, passage from Mark also is Yeshua midrashes regularly with his disciples. They have private discussions. They go and sit down in the house. They're having lunch. They ask Yeshua about this or that. And he gives them answers. He explains things to them. So we usually think about midrash in the context of we discuss with each other stuff from the word on Shabbat. But I want to give you a bigger idea of midrash. Midrash is when you walk with Yeshua and you ask him questions and he tells you cool stuff. So midrash is for every day. And the person that you should be midrashing with the most is the master. And secondly, with your families. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay, let's just look at what a midrash is. A uh, couple... Uh, kind of scriptural parameters, and why do we midrash anyway? Like, what's our objective with this stuff? Um, I think, firstly, uh, it's important to realize that midrash is a privilege. Really. It's a privilege to meet over the holy texts. It's a privilege to have the written word of God in our own language. It's a privilege to speak up in the assembly. And that's a great thing to remember. Uh, I want to talk for a couple of minutes. Okay, yeah, there's a couple other things here I want to talk to you about that. Um, Midrash is... Secondly, it's a time for the prophetic gift to be operative. Now, often in today's world, when you talk about the prophetic gift, you think like, ooh la la, glitz and glamour, or uh, like fortune telling and telling the future, or maybe pushing people over. This is not the prophetic gift. The prophetic gift in Paul's time was speaking the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that is something that every one of us are called to. I want to look at a couple of verses in that regard. Because this is the heart of Midrash. Uh, Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 both tell us that when God pours out His Spirit on His people, the gift of prophecy is a gift that will be especially operative in the lives of His people. And especially teenagers and younger people. Your young men will what? And what? And see visions. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.5, this is a verse you should write on a card and put a big smiley face on and stick it on your fridge. It's one of those surprise verses. He says, guys, I wish that you would all speak in tongues. But even more, that you would prophesy. So if Paul was here today, he would say to each one of you, I want you to be able to prophesy. I want you to be able to speak the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If Paul wanted that, does that mean Yeshua wants that for us? Yes. Why do we not have that? If we don't have it, why? There's one reason. Because we haven't asked for it. The Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. James said, you have not because you ask not. So this, I believe, is something Messiah is calling us to as a congregation. To be regularly asking Him for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. For the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be operative in our lives. 
That's an invitation that he's extending to us. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, Paul also says, you can all prophesy one by one. <laughs> he gives some order there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, Paul says what the basic guidelines of prophecy are. If you're speaking prophetically under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you'll be doing three things for people. You'll be building them up. Everybody say, building them up. You will be challenging them. Or you will be comforting them. Okay? And the three fancy words for that in the New American Standard are edification, exhortation, and consolation. But what it's saying is, when you have a word from the Father and you share that, it's going to be building people up. It's going to be challenging them. And it's going to be comforting them. One of those three things. So, uh, yeah. Also, uh, another, another thing about Midrash is in uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. It says, the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. So when we are inspired by the Holy Spirit and we're speaking the word of God, who are we going to be talking about? Yeshua. Yeshua. Who is going to be at the heart of our conversation? So when we are midrashing in the Holy Spirit, who is going to be the centerpiece? Whose name is going to be lifted up? Who is going to be magnified in our congregation? Yeshua. Yeshua. That's right. That's the heart of a midrash. And that's why I wanted to play that song. I don't want to talk about you like you're not in the room. I want to look right at you. I want to sing right to you. So Midrash isn't us talking about God like He's way out there in the sky. Or Jesus like He lived 2,000 years ago and He's not around. Midrash is when He comes and He visits us. And He speaks to your heart. And He gives you a word to say. And it lifts up Yeshua. And it makes us realize, wow, He is great. He is worthy of our worship. What is He saying to our hearts? This is the heart of Midrash. Okay. So, um... The flip side of that is 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. There's a bad guy in the world. There's a villain. We usually call him Satan. Do you know what Satan wants to do? According to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Satan wants to distract you from Yeshua. During Midrash time, Satan wants to distract you from Yeshua. He wants to distract us from a simple focus on Messiah. Just that devotion to the Master. So during Midrash... Let's encourage each other to focus on Messiah, to encourage each other in our devotion to Him, to keep that simple focus that a bride has for her bridegroom. This is the heart of Midrash. Um, uh, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, this is the classic verse. This is probably the flagship verse of the house church movement, and I love it. He says, when you come, everybody brings something. One person has a teaching. Somebody else has a revelation. God showed you something cool, and he wants you to share that. Uh, somebody has a tongue, and somebody else interprets it. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. Okay? So, not everybody brings a teaching. Not everybody brings a revelation. But when each of us brings what God gives us, it's amazing. And we have such an awesome vision of Yeshua. He becomes so real to us. And uh, Paul adds a little afterthought to 1 Corinthians 14.26 when he talks about that. He says, and let it all be constructive. So everything we bring is construct- constructive. It builds up the body. Um, Midrash is also a time to give practical instruction in God's commandments. A lot of us are new to the Torah. We come from backgrounds where we have not practiced God's commandments, at least many of them that Yeshua practiced from the Old Testament. And we need practical instruction in how God's commandments apply to our lives. This is our mission. If you want to be great, teach the commandments, even the least of the commandments. Go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to do everything I taught you. So God's commandments should be another focus of our midrash. 
We should be talking about, how does this apply to my life? How can I go out and do that this week? What am I doing from his word? And what am I not doing? So, okay, going to talk about what a midrash isn't for a couple minutes here also. You know, I get the impression that there was a lot of midrash going on in the first century messianic community. And I get the impression that there was some great stuff going on. And I also get the impression that there was some stuff that Paul didn't like. Because when you read his letters, he says certain things, and that can only apply, really, to Midrash. So we're just going to skip over a couple of those things there. Um, and 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, solemnly charge them, in the presence of God, not to wrangle about words, which is useless, and leads to the ruin of the hearers. I, thank God, I think we do a good job not wrangling about words. I am sad to say, in many sectors of the sacred name part of the Messianic movement, this is not true. Most of it consists of wrangling about words, how to pronounce the name, going back to the ancient Hebrew pronunciation, supposedly, instead of the way all the Jewish people in the world say things today. So, thank God, that, hasn't, that really hasn't hit us. Second um, Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, Paul says, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. I am so thankful that we don't argue as a congregation. We discuss things, but we don't quarrel. So I just wanted to point out those and say, thank the Father. Good job. (laughs) We're having some great midrashes. Um, There are several other verses here too. Uh, 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 7. One of the things Paul says is, the midrash isn't a time to pay attention to myths. The Hebrew word there is agadot. It's not a time for mere speculation. It's not a time for fruitless, i.e. unproductive discussion. It's a time to build up each other's faith. So, more on that Agadot term in a second also. So, you know, Paul encouraged Timothy, and he encourages us to label things. He says, you know, guys, there's some stuff that is, that is uh, mere speculation. There's unproductive discussion. It's okay to label that and say, let's go in a different direction. Uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, uh, Paul says, For this reason, rebuke them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So, the Hebrew word there for myths is agadot. And I know for me personally, and for some of us, we have an interest in extra-biblical literature. Because it gives us the context, uh, it explains the Jewish mindset, and there's some true traditions in there. We have to be careful, too, that we just make sure that we don't give too much attention to Jewish myths. Because some of this stuff in extra-biblical literature is highly mythical. (laughs) You read about the 12 patriarchs and their superhuman skills, and they sound more like guys from the WWF or something. So... That's one thing. Um, another practical area, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, uh, Married women, uh, if you're going to speak in the sense of, in the realm of prayer or prophecy in the congregation, just make sure you're in the right relationship with your husband. Make sure he, you have that covering. And uh, that's a good practical thing for Midrash. Uh, also in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 35, uh, Paul says, Married women, don't take your questions about the parish at a congregation to voice them there. Take your questions to your husbands at home first. Read the verse and see if that isn't the spirit of it. Why would he say that? Well, it's because as husbands, our responsibility is to take our families through the parishes at home throughout the week or on Friday evening or on Saturday morning. If we are neglecting to take our families through the scriptures during the week, we might not even want to come. We might want to just spend time as families first because in God's order, family takes precedence. It's, it's a thought to consider. Um, 
We, we've really been stressing that in our congregation. Uh, if you're a father, you need to be taking your family through the parsha during the week. Do it during the week. And then come here and you can share your insights. You can share the overflow. But this should not be the primary place where families are being fed. We should be fe- feeding each other during the week at home. And I think we're doing an awesome job at that. And it's encouraging. But it's something to, uh, to underscore again. Like, okay, I have to, okay, I'm just going to use a, Genevieve and me as, a, as an example. If Genevieve has questions about the scriptures or spiritual things, I don't want her coming here and just raising the question and having someone else answer those. I, I want to be Genevieve's best friend. I want to be the one that she goes to with quest, spiritual questions. Like, I want to have those deep conversations with her. And I think that's the heart behind Paul's words. Congregation is designed to strengthen the family unit. It's designed to enhance family life. And so that's just a really basic uh, thing about that. And uh, I, I think we do really well in that department too. But it's something that I just wanted to point out because a lot of us are new to congregation and maybe you're not familiar with what the Midrash thing is all about. So that's part of it. Okay, how to teach in Midrash. We're going to talk for a couple minutes about our objectives. And we're going to start by a picture of God's Word when He sends it into our lives. I have a couple of movie clips of exploding arrows. Is that queued up? Yeah. Okay. So here, here's, here's something to think about. I want to set the context for this. I, I like watching explosions. They're really cool. They make me go, whoa, sometimes. Maybe some of you be like, I can't believe he's playing this. But think about this for a second. In Hebrews chapter 4, what was the word of God likened to? Don't play it just yet. Dunamis? Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Explosive power. It says it was like a sword, right? A sword is a violent thing. It's, a, it's an object of war. And so maybe there's a, maybe, maybe if you know, Paul were around today, he would talk about how God's word is like a missile or something like that. We're just going to close with a couple of really practical pointers about Midrash and how to Midrash, what our objectives are. We already covered the first one, the mitzvot. We want to focus on practical applications of God's commandments. When I walk out of here, I want to know how God's word applies to my life in the upcoming week and how it applies to my lifestyle. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 7. I love this verse. uh, Paul says, Those whose gift is teaching should teach by the grace they've been given. So the key point there is, teach by His grace. Midrash how? By His grace. We teach and we midrash by His grace. And what precedes His grace on our lives? Humility. God gives grace to who? Humble. Humble. I, I'm thankful for that. Like, I, I feel, I, I sense a, a real humility in our congregation and when we discuss things. And I, I thank the Father for that and I pray that we'll grow in that. Um, so humility should be a hallmark of Midrash because it results in a gracious Midrash. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Interesting. Peter basically says the same thing as Paul. He says, Use your gifts to serve each other. Be good managers of God's grace. If you speak, talk as if you were speaking the very words of God. Whoa, does that apply to Midrash? It does, doesn't it? He said, if you speak, speak as if you were speaking the very words of God. In other words, in Midrash, just stop for a second. Here's a practical key. Stop for a second and ask him what he wants you to say. Ask him what he wants to show you. Because he'll, he'll tell you things. He'll show you things. And then you can communicate his word in the Holy Spirit, and it'll, it'll exalt Yeshua, and it'll bring grace to everybody who hears your word. I believe this applies to Midrash. 
Um, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 15, uh, it says that Yahweh talking, and he'll say, he says, he'll give us shepherds after his heart, who will feed us with knowledge and understanding. So, uh, number one, practically, contribute something from God's heart that will touch other people's hearts in the Midrash. In other words, keep it personal. Try and communicate God's heart in, what we're, in, what we're, uh, in, in our searches, our quests of Midrash. Uh, number two, confidently proclaim the truth. Tell the facts and then explain what they mean. Knowledge is like the facts, right? Understanding is what they mean, how they apply to my life. It's a couplet. Knowledge, understanding. They go hand in hand. And uh, finally, Mark chapter 4, verse 34. This is an area that the Father's really been challenging me in in this last year and I've been trying to grow in. It says something about a rabbi and how he taught. It said, Yeshua never taught them without a parable. He never taught without a story. He never taught without an analogy. He never taught without an object lesson. (laughs) So, during the Midrash, let's try and max out in that area. What do you guys think? Like, let's try and tell so many relevant stories. Let's bring object lessons as families. Let's bring show and tell stuff. Let's... uh, Let's make things really multi-sensory and, uh, shall we say, right-brained. <laughs> so those are a couple of practical pointers. Um, yeah, thanks for tracking with me during that. I, I, I pray that as we talk about these things, it'll just really boost us in our quest to encounter the Father every Shabbat. It'll give us a cl- clearer feel for why we have teaching, what teaching's all about, why we Midrash, <laughs> what Midrash is, what our objectives are in Midrash, and, and how we can do that. And uh, thank you very much for your time on that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.